So as we are thinking through some of these early weeks of this study, last time we had talked about wanting our glory versus God's glory or our desire versus God's glory. And tonight we're really going to look at sin. And we're actually, as we go, I'm hoping this did not happen the way I had hoped that it would happen, to have everything charted out so I could give it all to you guys, because I think it's helpful, for me it's super helpful, but for you guys to even know what are the topics we're going to be covering and what are the things that we're going to be discussing over the course of the study. So Lord willing, we'll see if maybe you get that in a couple weeks. But we are starting with a couple of things that are a little bit more personal and a little bit more applicable. That is on purpose, because... We could have jumped straight into the roles. We are gonna talk about roles. Roles are really important. We could have talked about various different things, but I'm starting here intentionally because we need to be thinking rightly about marriage, even as far as how we are interacting with our husbands from the very beginning, because that's gonna help you as we are talking through some of the topical, the other topical things that, that maybe aren't quite as applicable, but for you to still be able to think through, how am I responding to my husband? How, am, how is my attitude toward him? Am I interacting with him in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord? So that kind of maybe helps to give a little bit of clarity, but tonight we are going to be talking about owning my sin. And this is absolutely vital. I'm going to start by giving you an illustration from a counseling, uh, a counselee basically that I had quite a few years ago. And um, just because I think it will be helpful for us again to think through what does this look like on a practical level. And that's really my heart and goal for all of this is that we are very, very practical because our theology can sometimes be far removed from how we actually live, and we want to help to bring the two of those things together. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and describe the situation to you. So I had a counselee that came to me who was on the brink of divorce at the time that she came. Through various circumstances with her husband that he really couldn't control initially, he lost his job, and really he lost his career path. He struggled to change career paths, and because of various health issues, became less and less dependable in providing for his family. My counselee got a second and then a third job to help supplement his lost income. She was working around the clock and on weekends, waiting for him to land a reliable job that would again provide for the family. Sadly, he grew less and less motivated to find a job and often allowed his health issues to dictate his level of perseverance. As his laziness increased, he failed to be diligent in looking for a job, and when he finally found one, he would quit a few weeks later, blaming it on his health, which I will give him the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes it really was legitimate. His health was an issue. She rode his roller coaster of looking for a job, getting a job, and losing a job. As he looked for a job, she was anxious, yet hopeful this would be the answer. When he found a job, she was happy and comforted looking to the job to fix their problems. But each time he lost or quit a job, she became increasingly angry and fearful, resentful, and bitter. Resentment grew in her heart. She was impatient, fearful, critical, and furious, which led to outbursts of anger, tongue lashings, naggings, and scoldings, and you name it. 
She became the contentious wife growing deeper in bitterness and resentment. By the time we began to meet, she, I would say, probably really was hating her husband. And she was bitter against God. Her focus was locked on her husband's sinfulness. She blamed him for all the difficult experiences that she was facing in the present. It was true her husband had sinned against her. He had failed to be obedient to his biblical role in marriage. He was lazy and took advantage of her. He failed to love her as Christ loved the church, and his inactivity communicated a lack of love for her needs. So as a counselor, how could I help her? Her marriage was clearly a mess. Her husband was just very frankly a jerk. Her life was ridiculously difficult. So what do I say to her? How can she possibly live in a marriage with a husband like this? So obviously, I'm not going to spend the time to work you through the ins and outs of how you begin to help a woman who is wrestling with such difficult marital things. I'm not going to walk you through all the counseling things, but I am going to help you think through a couple of things. One thing that she had begun to address and take responsibility for was her sin in marriage. Actually, I think I spread that wrong. One thing she had not done was take responsibility for her own sin in her marriage. She couldn't fix her husband, but she could fix herself, and that's what she needed to focus on. So that's really where we had to start, was what was her responsibility in this difficult marriage? So in relational situations like this, often the tendency is to look at the sin of the other person and blame them for the difficulties you are experiencing. And it isn't wrong to acknowledge that the other person's sin has made your life difficult. I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes that's, really, that's just really the reality. This is precisely what sin does. It harms and destroys and makes a mess out of relationships and circumstances. But what we need to realize is that when we respond sinfully to the other person's sin, we add to the harm and the destruction. Our sinful response never fixes the other person's sin. It only makes it worse. If you don't get anything else that I say all night, that right there is something to take home and to think about for the next two weeks because what it's doing is it's helping you to understand your sin is serious. And I don't think a lot of times in our everyday interactions with our husbands that we really think through our sin as being as damaging as it actually is. So if we have issues that we're working through with our husband and... It doesn't even have to be sin on his part. Whenever we sin, we make the situation more complicated and more difficult. But if he is sinning against us, like in this case, if she began to sin against him, what then happens? It just makes the problem that much worse. And so even for us in the little things, perhaps our marriages aren't to this, this degree, but even in the little things, we need to think through our responses, our hearts. Are we responding in a manner that pleases the Lord or are we responding in sin? And sin always leads to destruction, even in the little things. In the case of this counselee, she was so entirely focused on her husband's sin that she could hardly acknowledge her own sin. When she did reluctantly or, gr or grudgingly 
admit that she was sinning as well, she was always quick to shift the focus back on her husband, blaming him for their relationship and their difficult circumstances. It was almost impossible for a long time to get her to actually look at her own sin and to own her own sin and to see it as destructive in the marriage. And I would say, especially for you young gals that, are, that have just gotten married, if you can learn this now, you will be so much further ahead than some of us. So this is why we're teaching you so that you can, Lord willing, avoid some of these pitfalls that other women that have been married for 20 years, all of a sudden they realize they're in this mess of a marriage and they don't know how they got there. And they don't realize that they were contributing to a lot of the mess through their own sin. In order to help her in her marriage, I had to help her see that she was entirely, 100% responsible for her own sin. First, against God, because all sin is first and foremost against God, and then, her, her, and then against her husband. So most of our marriages probably aren't to the place that her marriage was, but keep in mind her marriage didn't start out at that place. Over many years of not properly understanding and addressing sin, it festered and grew, almost entirely destroying their marriage. So tonight I want to help you grasp the importance of confessing and forsaking your own sin before our holy God. You need to understand that you are entirely responsible for your own sin, no matter how your husband sins against you or just even in his sin in general. Like the Apostle Paul, we need to be able to say, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. That needs to be the driving force of everything that we do in our lives. Is It should be our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. And remember last time when we talked about giving God the glory in our marriages, He is the one that should receive all the glory. And as we respond in sin, we are not contributing to that. I may not provide radically new information to most of you tonight. I would say probably this is going to be a review, but we are going to try and apply it specifically to our marriages. This lesson is vitally important to the health of your marriage. If it is truly your desire to please the Lord, you must identify your sin and seek to forsake it. And one of the relationships in which we are often inclined to sin is with who? our husbands, because he's really the person that we interact with the most. That's why. And like, there may be somebody, you may have an in-law or a coworker or something that is really, really hard to get along with, but there tends to be the ability to put distance in those relationships. But with our husbands, unless things are really on the rocks, we're sleeping with them every night. We're climbing into the same bed. We wake up with them in the morning. We see them very often. And so those little bitty things, we can be very comfortable in sinning against our husbands because we're just so comfortable with them. So I couldn't really think about how to categorize these. So we have two main categories that we're talking about tonight. And this is kind of maybe pathetic because I don't know if it entirely encapsulates what I'm trying to say, but capital, or I should say uh, Roman numeral one, how sin affects our relationship with God. And then right under that is capital A. There is a war in our hearts. And I realize that, like I said before, that that's probably not a new concept. 
but we need to consider this and really think about it as it relates to how we are interacting with our husbands. So I did, uh, I've got a couple of quotes here from Dave Harvey from that book that I mentioned last time, Sinners, Sinners Say I Do, When Sinners Say I Do, <laughs> always getting confused with that title for some reason. So he says this, sin creates war, war with God, war with others, and war within yourself. Now in marriage, what do you have? Two sinners, each with the potential for war constantly lurking within them. The sides in this war are not male versus female, husband versus wife, or controller versus enabler. It is a clash of desires, desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit. It is trench warfare for supremacy of the human heart. So before we even get to the war with our husband, there is first and foremost a war going on in our own hearts. So if you remember what 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And then to give that a little bit more understanding, Galatians 5, 16, and 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, now remember when it talks about the flesh, it's talking about the sin that resides in us after we become Christians. So we're not talking about our skin and bones here. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. What Spirit are we talking about? the Holy Spirit that resides in us. So we have remaining sin at war with the Holy Spirit. And all of this is going on in our hearts. Why is the Christian life hard? Because there is always a battle going on in our own hearts. So the verse continues, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. This battle always going on. Peter calls it the war. And it is a war because we are fighting that sin all the time. And you know if you're being provoked, what happens? And you're really trying to please the Lord in it. That is really hard, is it not? It's actually a lot easier under provocation to just do what? Give in to your flesh. Just yell back. Fight back. It's a lot easier to do that. But when you seek to please the Lord, you engage in that battle. And now it's hard. It's difficult. So now you bring yourself and your husband and the same things going on in his heart. So when you give in to your flesh and he gives in to his flesh, now we have a war with each other. So the goal is is that I would live according to the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me and that he would do the same thing because when we are both living according to the power of the Holy Spirit, there's actually harmony. And that is the only way that we truly have harmony. Now, okay, we, I think I said this last time as well, husbands aren't here. So obviously we aren't talking to our husbands but if you guys can learn the importance of this, you give him the greatest opportunity to then live by the Spirit. But just like I said a minute ago, 
When you're living under provocation, it makes it really hard for you to live out of the spirit, right? Okay, so now flip that to your husband. When you are provoking him because you are being sinful, that makes it really hard for him to live by the spirit. So when you are being controlled by the Holy Spirit, demonstrating the fruit of the spirit in your life, you give him the greatest opportunity to grow and to be mature and to love his savior and to live as he ought to be living. So this is why it's so important for us to meet here so that we are being the wives that God would have us to be. So then quoting from Dave Harvey again, he says this, the cause of our marriage battles is neither our marriage nor our spouse. It's the sin in our hearts entirely, totally, exclusively without exception. Whatever shows up in my words or deeds comes from one place, my heart. The problem is not around or outside of us. The problem is the great opposition, he calls it, within us. So he says, what is the greatest problem in my marriage? Me. I'm the greatest problem in my marriage. Now, if you have been having any struggles with your husband, I dare say that's not a comforting thought to you, is it? Because our natural sinful tendency is to blame him. And we have to learn to take our eyes off of him and look at our own hearts and take full responsibility for our own sin. So Matthew, going along with what Dave Harvey said, Matthew 15, 18 through 19 says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. All of these things come from in our own hearts. And it is only by living according to the power of the Holy Spirit that we will live differently than what is described right here. So I want to kind of give you an example. Let's try and make this really practical. So if this is not your, your situation, then you just think about what is your situation. I kind of hate getting specific because it's easy to say, eh, we don't have those kind of problems. All right, fine. Well, I'm sure you have a problem, so think about which one that is. So... Imagine, dinner is over, you've had a long day and you are tired. You really don't want to do the dishes tonight. You do them most nights and tonight you just really wish your husband would get up and do them. You don't care that you usually do them, that doesn't bother you most of the time. But tonight it would be so nice if he would do the dishes. Surely he can see how tired you are. You know because you have dark circles under your eyes and you saw that the last time you looked in the mirror. You saw those circles and you know your face looks tired. And your eyes look a little droopy as well from the fatigue. As you finish dinner, you linger a little bit longer hoping he will get the clue. But instead he's talking about his day, explaining the latest technical thing at work. He hasn't seemed to even notice you're so tired that you can hardly pay attention to his boring conversation. Clearly, he isn't getting the clue. If you keep sitting at the table, the dishes will never get done, so you reluctantly get up and start cleaning the table. As you clear the table, he grabs his phone and heads to the couch to relax from his busy day. Your heart sinks and your mind starts to spin with questions and accusations. 
Will he never pay attention to what is obvious? Will he always just think about himself? How is it, how, how is it loving you? Uh, that doesn't make sense. Just, just. <laughs> you know, sometimes I don't know what I, what I write when I get up here and then I'm trying to figure out what I'm saying. So anyways, okay, we'll just move on to the next sentence, all right? <laughs> The dog seems to have more sensitivity and intuition than he does. Your heart grows colder as your thoughts stumble over each other. By the time you finish the, dis the dishes, you are so frustrated, discouraged, and even lonely now because he's just such a jerk. He doesn't pay attention. You may as well be alone in the house. You decide to go take a shower so you can relax for a few minutes before bed, but also using it as an excuse to avoid having to go in there and sit by him. But much to your absolute frustration and exasperation as you get out of the shower, you notice that he's waiting for you with eager anticipation, hopeful for a night of intimacy. That's enough to make you slap him. Throwing him an icy glare, you give him a cold shoulder and head to the kitchen, the least likely place for him to follow you. <laughs> Okay, now maybe that's not your thing, but I would say in one way or another, we can probably all relate to our own hearts. And we laugh about it because it's so stupid. But the reality is we actually do this and we fill our minds. She was tired, right? Just tired. But what changed her attitude? All of her thoughts changed her attitude toward her husband. What in the world has just happened? You have, in, you have encountered a battle between her flesh and her spirit. And who won? The flesh, yeah. The sinful selfishness that was in her heart influenced her thoughts, then influenced her actions. She, she knew her attitude was wrong, but she blamed him. If he was more sensitive, if he cared just a little bit, if he would only ask questions, you would be happy to do the dishes, right? If he just noticed, if he just cared, I'd happily do the dishes. But because he doesn't notice, I don't want to do these dishes. It's his fault that you got upset. Maybe this will teach him a lesson. And you could even go so far as to say, you don't care. You didn't pay attention. We're not having any intimacy tonight. Do you see the levels of sin that have gone on all because she gave in to her flesh? And we have to guard our hearts that we do not give in to our flesh. And we're not going to talk about intimacy tonight, but remember what Chris has been saying. Our body is not our own. We need to share our bodies with our husbands. So it, it all, the, all this sinful attitude and sinful heart ends up continuing in sin against our husband. Well, now he's provoked. So are we giving him the opportunity to live by the flesh or live by the spirit? Now we've just become a stumbling block to our husband all because we gave in to the flesh instead of living by the spirit. And it's not that we can't have hard days. We do have hard days and we are really tired. But this is when we cry out to the Lord for grace. Lord, I am tired. 
but you have promised that your grace is sufficient for me, that you will meet me in my tiredness and help me to continue to love and serve my husband, being a helper to him, listening to his conversation about work, loving him by sitting on the couch, and even having intimacy with him at the end of the day. Because this brings glory to God. Because it's not about my desires, it is about giving God glory in my marriage. So B, our sin is against God. So Psalm 51, 4 says this, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. When we sin against our husbands, we need to keep in mind that first we have sinned against God, and I already mentioned that earlier, but this is not a trivial matter. God doesn't overlook our sinful rebellion as quickly and carelessly as we do. Yes, He has forgiven us in Christ if we are believers, but there are consequences for our sin even when we are believers. And it is true that He will forgive our sin, but we must humbly repent to restore that broken fellowship our sin has caused between us and God or between us and our husbands. We need to keep in mind that we will give an account of our lives before God one day. So that is your memory verse, and I'm going to talk about it right now. So moving on to C, we will give an account before God. And I'm going to just try and kind of give you an overview of how these pieces fit together to help you understand the seriousness and the weight of this and why this is so important. We will each stand before God one day and individually we will take responsibility for our own motives and actions apart from what others have done to us. We will all stand before the Lord. Now there's going to be two judgments, right? We aren't going to be a part of the white the great white throne judgment, because that's for unbelievers. But we will stand before the Lord. And what do we want him to say to us? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we desire. But if we are constantly living out of the flesh, that is not going to be the case. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So I actually went back and forth. Which one was going to be our memory verse? Was it going to be this one or was it going to be the one from Psalm that I just read a couple minutes ago, against you and you only have I sinned? And the reason why I landed on this is because this verse honestly is probably more helpful in keeping me from being from sinning against my husband than the other one. And Maybe that's just because I'm so self-absorbed. I was, I was wrestling through this. I'm like, what is this saying about me? Um, so that might be a bit of a scary thing. But anyways, maybe I'll mature a little bit more and like the other verse better. But the reason why I felt like this one was helpful is because there's a sense of accountability to it. I'm going to stand before him. It's not like I'm not as sensitive to like, Just, okay, I'm sinning against the Lord. I know that he'll forgive me, but to know that one day I'm going to stand before him and he is going to either say, well done or not, that brings a weightiness to my desire to live according to the word of God. 
We will give an account for what we have done well here on earth. We will be held personally responsible for whether or not we obeyed scripture. And the following verses here actually give a little bit more insight and help us understand our memory verse actually. So 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11, so 11 through 15, says this, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, we can't, if we are truly believers, we can't sin in a manner that's ever going to cause us to be unbelievers. If Christ has saved us, remember, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a promise. We are his children. He is not going to unadopt us once he has adopted us as his children. However, the issue here is the reward. If we choose to live our lives always out of the flesh, we'll go to heaven, but there will not be the reward there. And so thinking that through, it brings weight to those little bad attitudes, those little criticisms, just, just like what I described about the whole dishes thing. We have to consider how we are counseling our own hearts. Am I counseling my heart toward indulgence in the flesh or am I counseling my heart that I might live according to the truths of Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit, which pleases the Lord and brings glory and honor to Him? Our attitudes, motives, works, and words will be fully exposed before God. In the next chapter... In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul explains that the Lord will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. So it's not even just our actions here. What are our motives? Are our motives desiring to please the Lord because we love Him? Or are our motives just doing the right thing so that we look good, so that other people looking on have no idea. We can, we can do the right thing with our husbands. She could have gotten up and, and, and um, done those dishes like she did and had her husband not have any idea that she was seething inside. And how often have we done that? We've done the right motions, but we are seething inside with sin. The Lord knows our hearts. And what drives us, our motives, are very, very important. So just like my counselee in the opening illustration needed to understand that she was responsible for her sin, we need to understand that we are responsible for our sin. Regardless of our husband's attitudes and actions, we still need to be obedient to God's word. So here's the kicker. We don't determine the standard of our obedience. God is the one who has determined the standard. He is the one who has set the bar for us, 
And it is none other than who? His son, Jesus Christ. That's who we are striving to emulate, to be like. So D, Jesus Christ is the standard for our holiness. We must be careful to guard our hearts from the temptation of comparing ourselves to others like the false teachers did. So if you remember from 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says this, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. So Paul is talking here about the false teachers, but we can do the same thing and compare ourselves to other people. And what does it say when we do that? We are without understanding. So often we compare our attitudes, our words, and our actions, well, to our husband, right? We can always come out on top when we do that, almost always anyways. But we can also compare ourselves to our friends, to our mother, to our sister. But scripture warns of the foolishness of that. Instead, we should measure ourselves against the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ from Ephesians 4.13. Christ is our standard for how we ought to live as we interact with our husbands in our marriages. So have you ever considered why there are no... Oh, this is a quote again from Dave Harvey. So he says this, Have you ever considered why there are no accounts of Jesus slamming a door in angry frustration or in, or inflicting the silent treatment on someone who hurt him? Why didn't Jesus get irritated or bitter or hostile? The simple but astounding answer is that when he passed, when he was pressed by his circumstances, what was in his heart came out and what was in his heart love mercy compassion kindness christ didn't respond to the circumstances in his life even an undeserved humiliating torturous death because his heart was pure what was in his heart spilled over and what was it it was love and that needs to be the thing in us when we are pressed in our marriages, in our families, in the circumstances of life. Because see, it doesn't always have to be that our husbands are the ones pressing us. Sometimes it's difficult circumstances that press us. Financial challenges, all kinds of different things that, that squeeze us together as a couple. But we each individually have the responsibility to respond according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And like Jesus, when we are pressed, what needs to come out of our hearts is love for our husbands. Now, where do we get love from? From God, right? We love because he first loved us. If we are not cultivating a love for God, a love for our savior, we're going to be hard-pressed when it comes time to love our husbands because there's not going to be anything there. We have to be cultivating a love for Jesus Christ. And where does that begin? With the gospel. We always have to come back to the gospel, rehearse the, the gospel over and over and over again in our minds because when we see our wickedness, our depravity, 
and we see the lengths that God went to save us, that should fill our hearts with love for him that then is willing to, to spill out onto our husbands. And even when they sin against us, what should come out? Patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. All these things need to come out of us when we are pressed. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to who? The image of his son. We have been predestined to be the children of God. And he has determined that we should look like his son. The way God works in our lives to conform us to Christ's image is by bringing circumstances and relationships into our lives into our lives that rub against our will. Often these come in the form of those we live with because they are sinners just like we are sinners. God in his sovereign goodness has provided marriage as an opportunity for us to learn to respond in a Christ-like manner to our spouse's preferences, yes, Christ-like manner to his preferences, ideas, differences, and yes, even his sin. Who you are married to is not a mistake. Your husband is a gift from God to you to help you look more like his son, Jesus Christ. And we have to constantly keep that in mind. So then, Roman numeral two, how we should respond to sin. So A under that, sin is personally harmful. So you probably have in on your paper. That was a typo. Sin is personally harmful. When we choose not to allow the challenges in our marriages to conform us to Christ's image, we begin to form patterns of sin that can become habitual, even leading to a way of life. But sin is harmful, and when we let it become a pattern, there are consequences. Any one of us could find ourselves in the same place as my counselee who allowed her responses to become sinful to the degree that she had become a bitter, unforgiving, and contentious wife. We like to think that's not us, and it never could be us. But the fact of the matter is, when we continue to give ourselves to our flesh over and over and over again, we set habitual patterns in our life that become a lifestyle and the roots of bitterness start to grow in our heart and they become very, very difficult to uproot and pull out. Psalm 38, starting with three, the middle of verse three onto verse eight says this. So just describing, so what I'm going to do here is just describing the, the difficulty that sin brings in our lives. So that's what this is right here. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. 
My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation in my heart. This right here, if we live in habitual patterns of giving into the flesh of sinfulness, this will describe who we are because sin absolutely destroys. And so we have to be on guard, counseling our hearts all the time. Am I striving to please the Lord in my marriage? Am I seeking to give glory to the Lord? Or am I fighting for my own desires? As I fight for my own desires, this is who I'm going to turn out to be. And we need to be warned. Again, this is why we're even having this study to help you younger ladies realize here are the warning signs. Stay away. Listen to what I'm telling you. Don't let these sinful patterns get a hold in your life because you don't want 20 years down the road from now for this to be the description of you. Can you imagine what that would be like for the man living with you? For your poor husband? What about your children? If this describes you, what does this do to your children? We need to be warned and to take heed. If we do not want our sin to become a pattern, we must take responsibility for our own sin. We must measure our hearts against that of our Savior through His Word and eagerly identify attitudes and deeds that are motivated by sin. So I will say, these are all really nice things. And we sit here and we agree. And then we go home and we have the whole dish scenario. So when you go home or tomorrow, or the next day, and there's something that comes up that rubs against your will, what are you going to do with your thoughts? Maybe this is a good thing to talk about in your small groups and to be accountable to because it's those little things. Okay, and we'll just be real honest here. A lot of us struggle at that time of month, right? The hormones kick in. And sometimes we don't even recognize where the bad attitudes are coming from. Sorry, girls, it's not an excuse. It's just not an excuse. Why is it not an excuse? Because God has said, my grace is sufficient for you. So we have no excuse ever to sin because his grace is sufficient no matter how tired we are, no matter how hormonal we are, no matter what the challenges we're facing in our life, his grace is sufficient so we don't have to, to sin. So we be here on your outline. We must admit our sin. So 1 John 1, 8 if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, clearly, we need to admit when we have sin. And I'm going to read 1 John 1, 9 later, not right now. We're going to skip and go to verse 10. John writes this, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. When it comes to interactions with our husbands, sometimes this is exactly what we do. We blame him. We blame our sin on him. He caused me to do it. 
We know it's not true. We know we have responsibility in it. But in the middle of our sin, that's what we do, is we blame him and we don't take full responsibility for it. And I have been striving to practice this in my own heart, particularly in the last couple of years. And I will tell you that it just comes down to, and I don't know, maybe somebody else has something else they want to add to this. But when my heart is provoked, I have to wrestle every time. Now, there are places where it gets easier in that wrestle, of course. But when I have that attitude, it's that underlying desire. That's what it is. When that desire is there, I almost see myself, I, I tend to be visual in my own head, as standing on the edge of the fence, deciding where I'm going to jump. And sometimes it is so difficult to not give in to my flesh because I want to sin in the worst way you can imagine. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> and so what do you do when you stand on the fence? You cry out to the Lord, even as your heart is wrestling with the rebellion that you're wanting to give way to. Lord, I want to give way to that. Please help me not to. Go turn on praise music. Go grab your verse on the fridge. Help yourself by renewing your mind in the truth of Scripture. That has got to learn to be habitual in your life. That's the pattern you have to learn because if that is not your pattern, every time you get on the fence, you're going to jump into the flesh. Every time. You have got to learn to have something in place so that when you stand there. Now, if you have allowed your heart to give way to the flesh over and over again, I'm going to tell you something that's going to be harder at first because you're having to build all new patterns. And so it's going to be really hard not to give in. Okay, now what's going to happen when you give in? Do you just melt into a puddle and why bother? No, no. You still go to the Lord and you confess your sin and you ask for his strength. You repent. And then what do you do? You get back on that fence and you jump on the other side. And he will help you because his grace is sufficient. Okay, none of that was in my notes. So we'll go back to my notes and see if we're on track here. So John MacArthur said this. Christians are rapidly losing sight of sin as the root of all human woes. And many Christians are explicitly denying that their own sin can be the cause of their personal anguish. More and more are attempting to explain the human dilemma in wholly unbiblical terms, calling it temperament, addiction, dysfunctional family, the child within, codependency, and a host of other irresponsible escape mechanisms promoted by secular psychology. The potential impact of such a drift is frightening. Remove the reality of sin and you take away the possibility of repentance. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity and you void the divine plan of salvation. Erase the notion of personal guilt and you eliminate the need for a savior. We need to recognize our sin because See, this is actually a really good and really beautiful, helpful thing because when we identify that our issue is our sin, 
there's something we can do about it. We have hope. We can repent. If all this is is his fault, what are we going to do about it? We have to recognize our own sin because it gives us something to do. Repent and strive to please the Lord by living according to his word. The difficulty we face is that we are fighting a deceitful foe that is crafty and clever, one that we don't often recognize. As a result, we succumb to the deception which results in sin. So see, we are easily deceived about our sin. And I'm just going to go through these really quick. But number one, our hearts are deceitful. So Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I'm going to read this as well because in Jeremiah, he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else. But Proverbs 28, 26 says this, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. When we trust in our hearts that our feelings are should dictate the way we respond, we are absolutely foolish. We can't let our feelings dictate that. Our hearts dictate how we respond. We have to let the Word of God dictate how we respond because our hearts are deceitful and they will lead us astray apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit. Number two, sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3.13 says, but Encourage one another day after today, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. So we have deceitful hearts apart from Christ, and our sin is deceitful, and you know what's coming, which you thought I was going to start with, right? <laughs> that number three, Satan is deceitful. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This is what Satan is trying to do all the time. This is his goal, to lead us away from the purity of devotion to Christ. So you get all these things together, our hearts that are deceitful, sin that is deceitful, and a tempter who is deceitful, an enemy who is striving to deceive us, we are going to be led astray, but apart from God's word. Our only defense against that much deception is by knowing the word of God. Only God's word is the ultimate truth that can pierce the deception and reveal our sin and reveal how we can live in a manner that reflects the character of Christ. And this is why you have verse cards, because that has to be your defense. It is your only defense. The only truth is the word of God. So D, focus on your personal sin. No blame shifting. Another aspect of our relationship to sin is our eagerness to focus on the sin of others rather than on our own sin. And I've already said that. 
So to use my counselee as an example again, this was one of the most difficult aspects of her relationship with her husband. He had seen, sinned grievously against her, but because she only focused on his sin, she failed to identify her own. And you know the verse from Matthew, right? 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your husband's eye. You hypocrite wife, quit picking at the speck and get the log out of your own eye, essentially is what is being said. And we know this verse, we know this passage, but we just skim over it. We've got to learn how to take these truths from scripture and very carefully apply them to our lives. When my counselee began to shift her focus to the log in her eye, we began to see significant changes taking place in her life. As long as she blamed her husband, there was nothing she could do to change the situation. But as she began to identify her sin, she was able to make necessary changes that began to bring healing into her marriage. Recognizing her sin against God gave her the opportunity to confess her sin and repent, which led to a lifestyle of change. These changes freed her from the grip of sin that held her in bitterness and unforgiveness toward her husband. So E... Sin requires repentance. So here is our 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Psalm 32, 5 as well says, I acknowledged my sin to you, speaking to the Lord, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When we confess our sin, we have a kind and loving God who is far more gracious and generous than we are, and he will forgive us. Only as my counselee began to see the horror of her own sin, could she begin to walk rightly in her marriage? It began with repentance. She had to recognize her sin, confess her sin, and turn from her sin by learning to be obedient to Scripture. This pattern is the one that needs to define our lives as well. We will be practicing this until we leave this earth. That's just the way it is. We will never stop fighting our sin and repenting of our sin. The younger you are, the greater blessing this will be to you because you can form these habits as a way of life before patterns of sin turn into deep-seated bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, and all those other things. So F, ask God to keep you from further sin. So Psalm 19.13 says this, Keep back your servant from presumptuous, that means proud or arrogant, sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. 
it is much harder to root out sinful attitudes, responses, and habits once it has turned into bitterness. If you are young in your marriage, guard your heart from harboring unforgiveness against your husband. Learn to forgive each offense so that it doesn't turn into bitterness. This will require much work and faith. By faith, you will need to focus on your heart, seeking the guidance of Scripture and exercising the strength of the Holy Spirit. By faith, you must identify what Scripture teaches and by faith, you must obey it. Because sometimes when our deceitful hearts are screaming at us to be controlled by sin, to be controlled by how we feel, it can be very, very hard to do the right thing to do what scripture says, that is the right thing. And so by faith, we trust what God has said in his word and we live it out, asking him to strengthen us to be able to do it. We have to learn to bring our emotions and our feelings under the control of our mind that is being guided by scripture. If you have been married for a lengthy amount of time and you have not guarded your heart against bitterness, you will have much work to do as well. Not only will you need to guard your heart against new offenses, you will also need to root out the existing bitterness. Like the newly married gals, you will need to walk in the knowledge of Scripture and obey it by faith. But you will have additional work to do because you have let your heart become hardened by your hardened toward your husband. Because you have allowed bitterness to take root, your ability to respond rightly toward new offenses is going to be tainted by your sinful unforgiveness of past offenses. It makes sense, right? This bitterness and unforgiveness is going to affect your ability to respond to your husband rightly and lovingly. The sin in your heart will keep you from believing the best of him and it will increase your potential to take into account a wrong suffered. So what do you do? This has been your pattern. What do you do? Every time those negative thoughts come into your mind, even from years past, habitual patterns on his part that keep flooding your mind, what do you do? You take them captive and you stop thinking them, and you fill your mind with the truth of Scripture. It's always the same thing. Put off the old self. Renew your mind. Think like God thinks. And then by faith, you put on the new self. You become obedient to Scripture. Three little verses in Scripture in Ephesians, it's in Colossians as well, but little verses but they are absolutely vital to our ability to please the Lord, especially in our marriages as we're talking about here. Every time you have a negative thought of any kind toward your husband, you need to silently pray that God will strengthen you and enable you to think and respond to him in a manner worthy of the gospel. You will need to take the promises of scripture and remind yourself of them as you wrestle with the desire to think or act sinfully toward your husband. And you know what else I didn't have on here, but you need to prepare yourself ahead of time. 
You need to be in the word regularly so that when you have these difficult situations that come, when you have those thoughts that come, you are prepared and you need to be spending time in prayer both for your own heart and for your husband. If you're not in the word and you're not in prayer, why do you think that you have any ability to change? It's ridiculous. You have no defense against your sin. So being in the word, being in prayer is vitally important. So I guess your takeaway from tonight is to learn to be sensitive to your own sin. And if you wrestle with this, that's what your time of prayer is for. Asking the Lord to help you to become more and more sensitive to your sin so that you will take full responsibility for it. Let's pray.